Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our prayer and devotional service um, Wednesday nights here at the Lakeview Baptist Church in Vermilion, Ohio. It's such a, pr- a pleasure and such a privilege to be tasked with this r- really important task, um, and that is the ministering of, of the Word of God. We believe this is a sacred thing, and we pray that God would work mightily by this means. want to invite you... If you have a copy of God's Word, to turn with me to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the title of our message tonight is, is The Purpose of Our Pain. Just going to begin by reading the scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Speaking of prayer, won't you join me in a word thereof? Father God, Father, you are glorious. Father, you are goodness itself. Father, all light, all life, all truth, all comes from you. You're the Father of light. You're described as in your word. Dear Lord, we ask for your grace and we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit tonight as we look into your word. We pray that these truths would be faithfully known to all of us, that these things would be impressed upon our hearts and have a transformative impact that would be seen in the Christian lives we lead hereafter. It is in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So I have often told people that I have a favorite word. People usually look at me and think that's, that's kind of strange that you would have a, 
particular word that is your favorite, but I, but I do. I, I, have, I have a favorite word, and, and my favorite word is the word providence. Now, what is providence? Providence simply refers to the governing power of God that oversees his creation and works out his plans for it. It comes from the Latin providentia, which refers to prior vision. So God has a, a prior vision, what he sees for the world, and he, by his divine power, sees to it that that vision comes to pass. You see, we all believe that God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all believe that. But God did not just create the heavens and the earth, leave it there, step aside, and, and then watch to see what happened. No, he, he created the heavens and the earth with a particular plan and purpose in mind. And not just a plan and purpose of what would happen at the end of time, but all of the things in between from the creation of the universe till the consummation thereof. Everything in between these two events, God had planned out before the world ever was. Providence refers to God's power of making sure that everything He has determined to come to pass will indeed come to pass. Providence is very, very personal in nature. You read some of the older Christian literature and the word providence was usually capitalized with a capital P because we're not just talking about some weird, strange philosophical concept. We are talking about a personal action of our personal God that He does in our world which affects us personally. It is a comfortable thing to think about. It is like a pillow upon which we can rest our heads. And we are going to see some of the very personal, very practical applications of this doctrine in our text tonight. And so we, of course, rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into all truth. Of course, as I said, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to be looking primarily at verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You see, Paul here makes it a particular point of his to let his readers know of the great trials, of the great suffering, of the great affliction that he and Timothy have encountered. Now, is this just an example of him complaining? Is he just venting? Well, no. He said in verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. You see, in the apostle's mind, the affliction and the suffering that he has experienced was not just some random case of chance or luck or happenstance, but it served the particular purpose of providing comfort and salvation for the church. Notice back in verse 1, how does Paul identify himself? He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You see, if you were to ask the apostle Paul to 
introduce himself, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul who he was, he would humbly reply that he was a sent messenger of Jesus Christ by God's will, chosen and set apart for that particular purpose. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that he puts no confidence in the flesh. You see, although he acknowledges that because of his heritage and his background as a Pharisee, he would have all kinds of worldly or external merits to boast of, but rather he puts no confidence in these things, for he realized that the righteousness that he had was not a, quote, righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3.9. What's my point in that? My point is that Paul looks at his life, he looks at who he is in a Christ-centered fashion, which by the way, I will add, that is the way that we should look at our lives. He writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what was the reason that it would be gain for him to die? It's that he would go be with Christ. You see, life, death, abundance, famine, whatever, whatever it was in his life, all of it was seen in light of Jesus Christ. That, you see, his relationship with Christ was the primary thing that defined who he was and defined all aspects of his life. And so hence he contemplates the affliction and the great suffering and the great tragedy that he has experienced. You read about the life of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and some of the things he describes in his various letters, and we realize this was a man who suffered greatly in his life. Great physical torments and great spiritual torments as well, writing that he had been given a, a thorn in the flesh, a Angelos, a messenger of Satan. You see, this was a man who, who suffered greatly. And so he thinks about his suffering and he contemplates it and he recognizes that the God who has called him, even in his suffering, was in those things working all of that for a particular purpose that, by the way, he knows is going to be a blessing to the congregation in Corinth writing, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You see, Paul and Timothy were extremely, extraordinarily, surpassingly burdened or weighed down beyond their strength such to the extent that they despaired of life itself, meaning it seemed to them that there was no way. It seemed to them that there was no chance. It seemed to them that there was no possibility that they were going to make it out of this situation alive. Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. They perceived beyond all shadow of a doubt that death itself was upon them. Beloved, never forget that the calling of the Christian life was never to be a, a comfortable or easy ride. Some expect a bed of roses when our Savior wore a crown of thorns. Some expect a life of luxury as even the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere 
Teresa's head. Some expect to be well-liked. Some expect to be popular. Some expect to be well-regarded by their fellow man, by their peers. Yet Jesus Christ says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. You see, do not think for a moment that you, a servant, are above your master, Jesus Christ. Some will find it a hard word to hear this. This is, you know, not what uh, people think is going to make them popular by preaching, but every bit of it is true. Every bit of it is scriptural. Jesus Christ himself did not come into this world to live a life of luxury. Why did he come here? He came to suffer. He came to die. He came to be the sin bearer for his people. And as he says, a seed will bear no fruit unless it first goes into the ground and dies. Christ's road to glory was through the cross. And our road to eternal glory will be paved with suffering and affliction. Now what we also have to remember is this. That suffering and affliction ought to take on a different tone to the Christian than it has to the average non-believer of the world. You see, the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. You see, we are Christians, and we are Bible-believing Christians at that. We believe all of those verses of the Bible, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, we believe all things in between are given of inspiration of God, which means that we also believe Romans 8, 28, which says, and we know, notice he puts it in the plural there. This is not some new crazy thing he's, he, he is coming up with. The apostle says, and we know, we collectively, as Christians who experience the grace of God, something that we share in common is that we all together collectively know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, this means that even our greatest, even our most terrible, even our most difficult, even our very worst sufferings, the most challenging and, and, and soul-exhausting conflicts and sufferings and affliction that we experience in our lives are being worked by God for our good. You see, that's what's so important about what we were talking about at the beginning with providence. Nothing's happening that God does not have some purpose for. I mean, the reason that this pulpit is where it is and not two inches to the right, two inches to the left, a foot back or behind, one millimeter above or below sea level, the reason why... These, the, the atoms and, and the molecules in our bodies and in the structure that we are currently indwelling, the reason that these things are where they are is because that is what God has determined would be. And therefore, everything has meaning. Nothing is purposeless. Nothing is random. Nothing is, is, is chance. And so there is a purpose in all things. And the apostle says that we know that to those who are called according to God's purpose, those who love God, that all things are working for their good. And you see, that's why it's so important that we remember it is God 
himself who is working these things. The Stoics of ancient Greek philosophy believed that there was this entity or, or concept of fate or, or reason or, or wisdom or whatever they called it, which was not a personal entity or being as God is, but is this impersonal force which, which governed all things in the universe. We as Christians do not believe as the Stoics did. We do not believe that. We do not believe that some impersonal, cold, unloving, dead fate is running this universe, working all things. But we believe that it is God, God who works all things, a loving God, personal God, the God who is revealed in and through Jesus Christ. And this God promises not only that he is going to work all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, but specifically that that which he does work according to the counsel of his will will be for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Is that not a sweet thing? Is that not a beautiful thing? Is that not the pillow which we can rest our heads upon at night? You see, this means that even when Paul and Timothy were at such dire straits that they believed death itself was knocking on their door, that even this great, terrible affliction, when they were so utterly burdened beyond their strength, that even this was being orchestrated by God for their good, for their betterment. Well, what good? does the inspired apostle see coming out of this thing? We'll look at the last half of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. James, the brother of our Lord, says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and that the effect of this steadfastness is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And it is with this mindset, it is with this outlook that Paul looks at these great, terrible afflictions that he and Timothy were faced with. And what is the logical, rational conclusion that he comes to? He says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, the normal way of a, a man or a woman is to rely on themselves and oh how common this is in our culture it's like we're americans we we are independent if, if there is a problem that needs solved if there's something that needs fixed it's time to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and and go out there and, and just just solve it just go out there and just 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 do it just come on man i mean how embarrassed how embarrassed do we get, some of us, when we have to ask for help? I've seen men labor intensely trying to solve some difficulty or some situation on their own just because they could not swallow their pride and just go ask someone for help. A carpenter's apprentice wants to impress his master, and so he goes to the workbench and he begins fashioning away on some pieces of wood and then... Eventually, he steps back and he realizes what a waste of time this all was. He messed the whole darn thing up. 
You see, that's exactly what we're like. That is exactly how foolish we are when we try to live our lives without the help, guidance, and aid of the Lord our God. We're like foolish children in that regard. But you see, in order to keep Paul and Timothy from such foolish self-reliance and such foolish pride, God saw fit in His good and loving providence to allow the two of them to meet with such a, a tremendous amount of adversity to the point that they were so utterly burdened beyond... By the way, that phrase, so utterly, it comes from the Greek word hyperbole, which is where we get hyperbole from. I mean, this is an intense, extreme, extraordinary level of being burdened that Paul is trying to describe there, such to the extent that they despaired of life itself. You see, but God, by putting them through such, such suffering, Paul and Timothy realized they needed God. They needed God. Though this was always something that they as Christians knew to some extent, greatly was their faith increase after going through this tremendous trial or difficulty and how many Christians can say the same things of themselves. They had perceived that there was nothing that they could do of their own efforts. There was nothing that they could do of their own working, of their own exertion to get them out of this trouble that they were in. It would take nothing short of a miracle to deliver them to safety. But then they remembered this. Their God, the one who called him to be an apostle, that God is the God who raises the dead. The God who raises the dead. They both believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the cornerstone of our faith. Paul says if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching and your faith is in vain and we're all still in our sins. That's the, everything hinges upon that central reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believe that He was crucified, that He was dead, that He was buried, and that He had risen again in a glorified physical body. They believed that He ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. They believed that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Him. They believed that He was going to reign until all of His enemies were made a footstool for His feet. They believed that He would be coming back to judge the living and the dead. And all of this, this great, this wonderful stuff was after living the life of a carpenter who was crucified as a blasphemer and a traitor, accused of being a drunkard, accused of being a a glutton, all all things that were completely false. He had never sinned slightly. He had no sin in him. You see, this was the God that they believed in. This was the God that they trusted, the God who raises the dead, the God who does these miraculous, transformative, wonderful, powerful things. They both testified that these miraculous realities were true. They also believed in a a spiritual resurrection of the dead, meaning that God had the power to remove the heart of stone and to give a heart of flesh. They believed that God could breathe life into a valley of dry bones. 
that those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins could be made alive in Christ Jesus and seated up in the heavenly places with Him. They also believed in a future resurrection of the dead. They believed at the end of time, at the end of history, all the bodies of everyone who had ever lived were brought into existence, would be raised up to go into either everlasting torment or everlasting life. And why do I list all the the different stuff? Because I believe all of these things were in their consideration as they experienced their suffering and learned not to rely on themselves, but to rely on the God who raises the dead. They trusted boldly that God had the power to deliver them from their situation. But even this, even this, they also believed that if it was God's will, that they were in fact to be killed, there was nothing to fear in this. For they knew that they were going to be with their Savior in everlasting and eternal bliss. And what a blessed state of mind this is. What a wonderful privilege and gift all Christians have that we can trust in and that we can believe in. You see, you can at any time, right now, trust and believe in the reality that God, your God, is the God who raises the dead. Whatever situation, whatever struggle you are in, God has the power to deliver you from that. But, you may wonder, what if it should be God's will that you remain in this trial? Well, do not fear and, oh, do not be dismayed. Remember that your inheritance as a Christian is eternal fellowship with this God and that nothing will ever separate you from His love. Trust, always trust, always believe, always hope that all things which take place in this life are the purposeful and loving actions of God's providence, which is always for the good of them who love Him, which is always for the good of those who are called according to His purpose, which is always for the edification of His elect. Verse 10, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You see, God, according to His good pleasure, decided that Paul and Timothy would make it out of this trial alive. When Paul saw that he had delivered them, it increased their confidence. That's, by the way, confidence. Where does that come from? Confide. It's a Latin term, with faith. It increased their confidence, their having faith that God was who he was. That God was who he was. That he was someone that they could trust and that he would deliver them again. By this he means that nothing was ever going to change. Nothing was ever going to disrupt this relationship that he had with God. And so he still trusts in the final resurrection on the last day that God would, would, would raise his body to eternal bliss, to eternal fellowship with him. And so although they were spared from death this time, even when they do die, God will deliver them from that as well. And and that is an amazing thing. That is a sweet thing, a wonderful thing for all Christians to hold on to tightly. You see, Paul demonstrates the strengthened faith he has received by saying, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And by the way, most, this verse gets very misunderstood. People often think that what this verse is saying is that the Christian faith is built upon believing things for no real apparent reason. For instance, in response to you know, some atheist's argument about how there is no God, there's no evidence for God, and it's just a fairy tale, and, and you believe in the sky daddy and all these different things, some well-meaning Christian may respond, well, well, well that, that's where faith comes in. And, and they will think of that verse in Hebrews which says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. But you see, if our faith was built on such a shaky, was built on such a loose foundation, it would be no different than the faith of the Muslims, the faith of the Jews, the faith of the Mormons, or the Jehovah's Witness, or any other group. You see, anyone of any religion could just say, that's, well, that's where faith comes in. A Jew who rejects the deity of Christ could just say, well, that's where faith comes in. A Mormon who believes in a multiplicity of, of different gods could say, that's, that's where faith comes in. But you see, I believe that we as Christians, that our faith is built upon something which is much stronger, much greater than any other religious faith of the world. Well, then what sets Christianity apart? Well, I don't have time to, you know, we could have a wonderful conversation about Christian apologetics with atheists and different things like that. It's not the point of this message. The point is simply this. Our God is the true God. Our God is the living God. And so when we put our faith in him, it is not just that we are believing in some concept for no particular reason, but rather what it is, it's putting our trust in a personal being. And the point of that verse in Hebrews is that we are believing his promises, that we are believing God's promises. That's the biblical definition of faith, by the way, to believe in God's promises. If you keep reading Hebrews chapter 11, you will see this exact thing that I'm talking about. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went into the land of promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I just want to make this brief comment. Lots of conversations about politics and government in our modern day. The Bible says that the city that has foundations is the city whose designer and builder is God. Just throwing that out there. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. You see, true biblical faith is not believing in something for no particular reason. Rather, what it is, it's trusting the promises of God. And why would I do that? What is, what is the reason for doing this? It is because by divine, sovereign grace, by the working of the Holy Spirit, we have come to understand that God is God and we are not. Noah looked to God's promises. He looked to the saving of his household, and by faith he labored. Abraham, by faith, looked to living and dwelling in the city designed and built by God. Moses looked to the future reward. 
choosing rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, rather than that, considered the reproach of Christ greater. What a wonderful sermon we could preach just right there. These imperfect, these flawed men of God all had this one thing in common. They trusted in his promises. And they not only trusted God, but each one of them suffered. Each one of them endured much in their lives as a result. And this is the kind of faith that God most loves. Abraham, as, as it is written, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the kind of faith Paul and Timothy learned as a result of their sufferings. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Beloved, if, think about this. If faith is such a wonderful and sweet thing to God, and God can increase your faith by your suffering, then will you not rejoice in the midst of your trouble? I mean, I mean how happy, how, how, how thankful, how, how content should the Christian be at all times? Every time something troubling happens in our lives, we get to realize that all that's going on, all that's taking place is that God is doing something. God has some good intention in this thing. God has some good purpose in this thing. Do you not realize the kind of delight, joy, and satisfaction all Christian people get to have because of this? Oh, perceive it to be a pure delight that God has a purpose in our pain. He works all things for good to those who love Him. Does this not then make Him even more deserving of love? And if our love for God is increased by this thing, then we can be even more assured that He works all things for our good because that's the whole promise is that He works all things for good to those who love Him. And so it's like this, these things work together and it's as snowball of bigger and bigger and our happiness and our delight just keeps growing and growing that's the christian life is that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ oh the more that we learn to lean not on our own understanding but to trust wholly in our good and sovereign god the better off we are i promise you this i promise you this if you are the central thing in all of our lives is that we trust in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you have nothing, and it does, does not matter. Some people th think about how Christian ministries and Christian ministers should engage with some of the problems in our world, drug addiction, alcoholism, pornography, theft, adultery, all these different things. Let me tell you something. If I solve someone's physical problem, if I solve someone's external problem, but I give them not Christ. I did not help him at all. Matter of fact, I made a situation worse. Why? Because if I know a man who's addicted to heroin, he, he, just, he can't stop thinking about heroin. He's spending all his money on heroin. And I, I come to him, and I, I do something, whatever it is, by some strange power, and I, and I cure him of his heroin addiction, and he never thinks about heroin again. Guess what? He's going to be happier. His life is going to get better. It's going to be easier for him to have a relationship. It's going to be easier for him to have a job. His life physically will be better. Therefore, he's not going to think as much about his eternal needs. You see, that's why Jesus Christ said, woe to you who are happy in this life, woe to you who are full in this life. If I solve someone's physical needs, but I don't give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, I hurt them. Therefore, 
as Paul looked at himself as an apostle of Christ by the will of God, every Christian in this room should view themselves in that way. To live as Christ and to die as gain. We don't live for ourselves. There's only one hero in this story, and his name is Jesus. And he died for the sins of all those who would believe in him. That is what, that's, what it, that's what it's all about. That's what it is all about. And by living the Christian life, our love for God, our affection for God only grows. And so how do we do this? How do we cultivate these sweet affections in our lives? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 11. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayer. He says you must Help us by prayer. He doesn't say, if you want to. He doesn't say, I have a suggestion, or, you know, you might like this. He says, you must help us by prayer. It is self-evident, it's rather obvious, that we would pray for our own lives, that God would grant us divine contentment. Jesus teaches that, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer. We are to pray, thy will be done. And that, you know, that includes many things, but one of the things it includes is that we would accept God's providence. We would accept that he would do his will in this world. But something that Paul particularly asks for is that the church would pray for him. Christ's ministers especially need prayer. I've, I've read enough about the lives of the prophets and the apostles, and I've studied enough church history to know that, that God very rarely, if ever, intends for one of his ministers to have an easygoing life. It seems like that's, that's not really an option. Uh, what you may not always be thinking about is the fact that Christian ministers are engaged in a great spiritual war. The devil and his angels wage war against him. They want to destroy him because they hate his master as he seeks to advance Christ's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And so, and so pray for your ministers, but the point is all of us need prayer. All of us need to learn by prayer, praying for ourselves and praying for each other, each other, that we would trust Christ more and more and more. All of this, the point of this message, was simply to say that God never allows something into our lives for no reason. Secular people mock the phrase, everything happens for a reason, but it's very true. We don't always know what the specifics are, but we know that for Christians, Everything is for their good. A particular thing we saw in our text tonight was that God allowed Paul and Timothy to suffer greatly to make them rely not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Thank you. With that being said, my brother just can't wait to get up here and pray. So God Thank bless you. Thank you very you. much, Logan.